Well, good morning and welcome. It is great to see everyone. Thank you, Andrea, for reading that lengthier passage. I think when I pick it out, it doesn't look quite as lengthy. But um, for those of you who are new or visiting here, my name is Deirdre Chance, and I'm part of the ministry team here. And thanks to the elders, I get to come and preach periodically throughout the year. Also, if you're new or visiting, we've been working our way through the Pentateuch. So we started in the fall. Lawrence wrapped up Numbers last week, and this week we're just starting in Numbers. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I was reminded of one of my husband's favorite movies, What About Bob?, (laughs) which um, I'm a little older than a lot of you here, so I'm thinking most people are familiar with it, but maybe not everybody. It was from like the early 90s. It starred Bill Murray as this character, Bob who had severe OCD and just this huge desire to write control his world in order to feel safe. And he comes across um, this successful psychologist, Dr. Leo Marvin, um, who's written a book, Baby Steps. So write that phrase, baby steps to the door, baby steps to the elevator, baby steps out of the office. And he's so impacted by Dr. Leo Marvin, he ends up like seeking him out on this Dr. Leo Marvin's favorite, beloved family vacation. And not only does he find him and seek him out, like in the Hampshires, he um, ends up integrating himself into his family's life. And he ends up driving Dr. Leo Marvin into like his sort of wits ends where he kind of loses it at the end. But what infuriates Dr. Leo Marvin so much is that Bob this unstable man is not only integrating himself into his vacation, into his family, but he's having, Bob is having a more positive impact on his family than the successful psychologist is having on his own family. So, right, it's this kind of spoof and comedy about control and order and what really is healthy and sane. And I was also thinking about just like my own experience and continuum with order and orderly habits. And I think my experience is like most people, most Americans, like when I was young, I did not want order. I did not want orderly habits. In fact, probably the only time I've written a paper where a teacher has highlighted, when I was in high school, I wrote this short essay on the benefits of having a disorderly room and how great that was. And that's like only time in my career where something I've written has been highlighted. It was all on how Disorder was good. That was how, right when we're young, we want to live. And then at some point in my life, I had not one or two, but five small children. And order (laughs) became a lifeline of survival so that the tiny humans would stay alive and not take over uh, or not get lost. I did lose one, but we found her. So (laughs) yay, order. Um, But today's scriptures, right, they're on order. They're on the orderly arrangement of Israel around the tabernacle. A little bit less comedic, but it's all about um, the nation of Israel. They're about to leave Mount Sinai and go into the promised land. And we've seen in the Pentateuch Israel going from being a family to an extended family to by the time we open up the book of Exodus, they are a nation. And overall... They have been characterized by faithless grumbling, stubborn independence, this refusal to cry out to God for help, and just disobedience. However, 
there are two notable exceptions to Israel's faithless characterization. The first exception is in the book of Exodus after the idolatry of the golden calf when they finally build the tabernacle. So there, they are not faithless. They are faithful and they do all that God has commanded. And then the only other exception to this faithless um, characterization of them is right here in the first chapters of Numbers with the census and the orderly arrangement of the camp and the life of the camp, especially around the tabernacle. And so today's readings from those first four chapters of Numbers, right, they recorded the census of Israel, all the ordering of both the Israelites and the non-Israelites, the duties and the tasks for the various tribes, and then the arrangement of the camp, how the tribes are to be arranged around that tabernacle, and then the consecration of the firstborns. And in chapter 2, that's really where it goes into detail about how the camp is to be arranged. So the tribes are supposed to be camped on each side of the tabernacle. Three on the east side where the entrance is, notably the tribe of Judah, which Jesus Christ comes from. Uh, on the south, three more tribes. On the west, three more tribes. On the north, three tribes. And then the Levites are supposed to be circling around the tabernacle. So the Levites are in between the tabernacle and the other tribes. And scholars have noted parallels between the arrangement of the camp and the Garden of Eden. Both have entrances on the east side that are guarded by cherubim. So, of course, the Garden of Eden was the actual cherubim, and then in the tabernacle, it's the representation of the cherubim, which is to serve as a reminder to Israel, not only of Adam's first original sin, but all the continual sins from all the following sons of Adam. Both are stated to have God's presence, both the garden and the tabernacle, God's presence walking about in Genesis 3 and Leviticus 26. Both have some type of tree of life. So again, the garden has the actual tree of life, and then the tabernacle has the lampstand representing the tree of life. Both have the presence of gold and onks, and both have this same Hebrew verb to describe both Adam's tasks in the garden and the Levite's tasks in the tabernacle. And then also in addition to this um, Arrangement, consensus census of the people, arrangement, duties. There's these directions for the consecration of the firstborn. And Israel was first directed to consecrate their firstborn way back in Exodus 13, right after the Passover, right after the angel of death swept through the land of Egypt and killed all the firstborn. Israel was directed to consecrate their firstborn, livestock through sacrifice and their sons through redemption. And right, it was to remind Israel of their indebtedness to God who delivered them from slavery and redeemed them by the killing of the firstborn in Egypt. Whoever hadn't painted the lamb's blood on the doorpost, um, experienced death that first night. And if we think about that, right, like Israel was only delivered and redeemed at the cost of the firstborn. And so the firstborn are consecrated to God. Deliverance and redemption had come at a very costly price. 
And so throughout Israel's history, they're to consecrate the firstborn to remember that price of redemption and that price of deliverance. Exodus 13, 14 says, And when in time your son asks you, what does this mean, meaning the consecration of the firstborn, you shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So if we look, if we take a step back and we look at the overall picture from these first four chapters of Numbers, we see a picture of the orderly arrangement of the camp and life around the tabernacle. And it's this literal, tangible picture of God's presence and God's redemption and God's protection. And even other laws and commands support this by being in contrast, right? Other laws and commands point out that outside the camp is where uncleanliness is, where shame is. But inside the camp, that's where God's presence is. That's where God's redemption is. That's where God's protection is. But I think still, like, right, if you read through all of Numbers 1 through 4, and I encourage you to, like, you can really get into a lot of weight of details. And it's easy, I think, especially as modern readers, to read this and be like, okay, but really, like, why all this order about the arrangement of the camp? Why all this order about specific tasks? Why dictate where each tribe had to camp? I mean, like, really, if a family of Reuben wanted to camp next to Judah, like, couldn't they? Why all these specifics to order? And probably, like, an easy, quick reaction would be, well, obviously, order can be a tool, right? If you've ever had to organize or navigate large groups of people or even a handful of tiny humans, you understand and appreciate how useful order can be. And Israel at this point is a nation. Like if you look at the counts in numbers, right, it's called numbers because there's numbering of people, there's 600,000 adult men, like 20 to 50. So easily if you include it like the elderly men and the young elderly people and the young men and the children and the women, easily over a million people in the desert. And so, right, wise governing authorities over time use order to help serve and protect and navigate and prepare against disasters. And so certainly the ordering of the people was a demonstration of God's continual grace and faithfulness to his people to protect and care for them. Normally it seems like order has one of two effects on us, right? There's some of us who do not like order, or we don't take it seriously enough. Um, maybe order feels restrictive. Maybe other people have like kind of pushed order on us, maybe even in a tyrannical way, like damaging us, restricting us, controlling us, maybe for seemingly no good reason. And right now we just try to minimize it, avoid it, reduce it the best we can. Um, sometimes it's just not part of our personality. I've actually read scientific studies that have operationalized what they call the traits of consciousness and seen that there are quantifiers to, that which gravitate people to order and gravitate people away from order. So maybe it's just a natural personal disposition that some of us 
don't like order. We feel it stifles us creatively or individualistically. But there's a danger, right, to this disposition, to this lifestyle. Like, it can leave us more vulnerable and exposed to stressors and to sin. It can lead to increasingly unrestrained sin. But then there's others of us who maybe take order too seriously, right? We can't imagine life without order. There's some new experience, and our go-to reaction is like, let's figure out a way to order it. We're like little efficiency engineers, and we just love to apply order and wield principles of order and see accomplishment and tidiness and efficiency put into place. But there's a danger, right, with this lifestyle, too. We can take it so seriously, we can overfocus on these principles that order becomes our sense of hope. And we'll see signs that we're looking to order as a sense of hope, right? When if order seems to unravel or displace, like we're having these strong emotional reactions, it like shakes us to our core. I've even seen people like start to question their faith when order isn't in place. Um, We can also see signs that we're taking order too seriously when our relationships are damaged, right? When we're putting into action these principles of order and we forget that there's people on the receiving end of these principles. And the Israelites certainly proved at various times in their history that they were very good at applying order to their lives. Right, they could be successful at putting in order. In fact, I just heard a report on NPR early, earlier this week about um, the devout, ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jews that still live in Israel. They're not part of mainstream society. They're removed because they want to live ultra-Orthodox lives. And it was um, a report about how they can only use kosher smartphones, which I don't know that I fully understood, but it had something to do with their numbers can't be transferred. Um, But it just demonstrates like how extreme we can live by principles of order. Order can become a source of hope. Order can, we can look to order as if it's our salvation. And of course, order is not our salvation. It was never Israel's salvation. Order is not the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ, not orderliness, is the heart of the gospel. Right? Jesus brought this new covenant and the kingdom of God now. Right? And Jesus said in Luke uh, 17 that the kingdom of God It's not an observable kingdom that you can like point to and be like, oh, here it is, or oh, there it is. He said, rather, the kingdom of God is among us. It's within us. And the kingdom of God is also an already and not yet kingdom, right? Jesus already ushered in the kingdom of God, and we can live in it here and now, but we also wait for its fulfillment. It hasn't been fulfilled Today, as we live in the kingdom of God, we still wait for its fulfillment, right? Like Revelations 21 talks about when the first earth and the first heaven, right, will pass away and the new heaven and the new earth where God dwells fully with his people. 
where death and mourning and crying and pain will be done away with and God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Like we wait for that fulfillment of the kingdom of God, even as we're starting to experience it now. And as we wait for the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, and as we are living in the kingdom of God now, we live in the kingdom of God as part of the church. And part of the gospel, part of the full counsel of God, is this sustaining ordering of God's people as the church that lives out the new kingdom in tangible, practical ways. Similarly to how that orderly arrangement of the camp was a parallel to the Garden of Eden, where, God's, where God and humans dwelt harmoniously, where sin was dealt with, and where redemption of humankind was bought at a price. Similarly, the church as the household of God, as the pillar and support of the truth, as the temple of the living God, is where humans and God dwell harmoniously, where sin has been dealt with, and the redemption of humankind has been bought at a costly price by the blood of Jesus Christ. So order is not our source of hope. It's not our salvation. Only Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection is. But order is good for us. It is God's gracious provision and care for us. Right? Order is God's wisdom. Just like any other wise principles we come across in the Bible, right? Normally we think of the book of Proverbs with wise principles. God has given a wise order for his church. This ordering or plan of the church, as it's often called in the New Testament, is for churches to be established in local churches and then to be connected as networks through apostolic ministers, through apostolic ministries. Each local church is supposed to be shepherded and protected by elders and then served in ministry carried out by deacons, which in our form and context is most like house church leaders. Right? If we look at the book of Acts, that's what we see. We see Paul primarily, though in the first 11-ish chapters, we also see the apostles, Peter, who had first walked with Jesus doing this. Right? They're sharing the gospel, but they don't just leave believers willy-nilly. They're organized into communities, into local churches. And these churches are connected by apostolic ministers and ministries that go beyond just the sphere of the local church. And elders are put in place. Deacons, we see them carrying out, again, just the service and ministry. Um, if you've ever taken the course Luke Acts here at TCC, that's where we study those principles. And I think maybe that's slotted to be taught this fall by George. Um, but again, order demonstrates God's care and protection for the church. I would, oh, and support of sound doctrine. You see that in the um, pastoral epistles, like living out sound doctrine is part of the way the church is ordered. 
Probably if we want to go to one book, I would say the clearest single book that talks about the plan of the church would be Ephesians, right? Which many of us study in our house churches. You've got the first two chapters of Ephesians, which is pretty much telling us what we ought to know about who God is and who we are. Chapter three gives us an overview of the purpose of the church. And then four, five, and six really gets into the nitty gritty of the specific way to live in this order of the church. So starting in chapter four, Ephesians discusses discusses how the household of God is to be ordered. So it says in Ephesians four that gifted ministers are given to the church, apostles, evangelists, um, prophets, shepherds, teachers, and they're to serve the church, to build the church up in love and help them to be equipped to love one another and not be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. And then Ephesians 5 and 6 gets even more specific where it spirals into details about household order and marriage order and order in our places of work, right? It says, wives are to submit and respect to their husbands. Husbands are to love and care for their wives as they do their own bodies, as Christ does for the church. Children are to respect and obey their parents. Parents are to raise their children in the discipline and love of the Lord. Employees are to work with integrity and wholeheartedness to their employers. Employers are likewise to oversee their employees with integrity and sincerity, not threatening And then Titus 2 builds on this and directs the church to a community order with a calling for older men and a calling for older women and a calling for younger women and a calling for young men. Older men, it says, are to be dignified and respectable, sound in their faith and love, right? Older men are to be in the community and be the stabilizing force as they're dignified and respected and sound in faith, and sound in love. And then older women are to be similar, respectable, dignified. But then older women are also to come alongside young women, young moms, and help teach them to love their children and love their husbands. And if you're in the midst of the challenges of raising young children, which many of us in our church are, you understand that challenge and maybe need for someone to come alongside. And then young men have just one calling. It's one thing to focus on, self-control. If you're a man who's maybe gravitating farther away from young and getting closer to old, somewhere in the middle there, and you did not learn self-control, you are probably appreciating the need for that and understand that. But again, this order is not our salvation. The gospel calls us to live out a clear order, but not to hope in order. Living orderly is good. It is wise principles. But it is not the source of our value or our worth. Your value, your worth, is based on the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ who rescued you from the domain of darkness, from the consequences of sin, from the pit of hell, because he loves you and is affectionately desirous of you. Jesus Christ's sacrificial death is the source of your value and worth. Which means 
if you're in the season of raising young children and your child is throwing a temper tantrum in public, in private, that is not a reflection of your value or your worth. It also means if your marriage is struggling, if your job is in shambles, that is not a reflection of your value and your worth. Only Jesus Christ's sacrificial death is the value of your worth to God. It also means if your marriage is admirable, if your children are well-respected, if your job is successful, that is not a reflection of your value or worth. Only Jesus Christ's sacrificial death, the costly redemption for you, is a reflection of your value and worth to God. Our value is based on God's grace. The riches that he lavishes on us, that righteous declaration that he pronounces over us by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that is the reflection of your value and worth, not your ability to live an orderly life. But... Because he loves you, because he loves us, he gives us wise, orderly principles to live by. He doesn't leave us unequipped or ignorant or orphans, right? He's not the type of dad that's like, hey, see you later. There's leftovers in the fridge. I think Mike Wilkerson uses that example in his book, Redemption. He is a God who cares and guides and gives us wise principles, And I think if we're honest, right, like we all want wisdom. We all want it. But folly and foolishness is just so much easier, right? Like Proverbs says, folly looks good. We don't look at foolishness and go, oh, that's terrible. No, we look at foolishness and it's tempting. It seems easier. Like Proverbs allegorizes, folly is like an attractive woman who promises you good results without any discipline, right? It's folly promises that we'll have that immediate gratification without having to wait, without all this silly business of waiting and depending on God. But Proverbs says that's not the way of wisdom. Wisdom comes with the fear of the Lord. As we grow in the awe and respect and fear of the Lord, we grow in wisdom. So in contrast, right, if we take these wise principles on order and we make them value statements, we make them reflections of our value and worth, then what's going to happen is if we're struggling to live them out, we're going to end up feeling worthless, so we're just going to throw them out to get away from that feeling of worthlessness. Where on the contrast, if we're really good at applying them, we'll end up elevating ourselves over others and be self-righteous and judgmental towards others. But if we can understand our value and worth based on Jesus Christ's sacrificial death and then learn to apply these principles by the Spirit as a spiritual discipline, right? It's a form of worship. It takes the mundane of raising kids and learning to be a wife and a husband and a good employer or a good employee, and it turns it into worship. 
Um, I would say I certainly experienced that in my own life. You know, as a young mom and wife, and I was learning to follow these principles on order, what I found, um, right, because these principles are from the Spirit. Like, there's, I learned to live a more Spirit-led life by applying these basic principles on order, not as my value, but as a way to worship God. And it, what it felt like is um, when I did things on my own, as I were just kind of ignorant, really, is it was like right trying to like paddle upstream. And then as I, through prayer and talking to older women, learned to start to apply these, it was like, wow, it's like I'm paddling with the current in so many ways. I saw the spirit fanned into flame in my life by applying these spirit-led principles. So again, just in closing, if we can stay centered on our value and worth being based on Christ's sufficient work for us, then if we struggle raising our children in our marriages, in our places of employment, we don't interpret that as a value statement. And then we're in a better position, right? We're confident that we are the beloved. That is our identity. That is who we are. So we can view these struggles from a more grounded and wise place and just see it's a struggle. I can talk to others. I can be transparent about this because my confidence comes from I am God's beloved, and that is based on grace by faith in Jesus Christ. So let me close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, I do pray that you would deepen in each of us to know that who we are is your beloved. Like the saying goes, we know that we are worse off than we ever want to care to admit due to our sinfulness, due to um, the domain of darkness, but we also want to understand and deepen that we are more loved and cherished than we ever care to hope. So I do pray, Lord, that we can be grounded in that, we can grow in that, we can deepen in that confidence. And I pray too, Lord, that your spirit would strengthen us, not only as individuals, but as a community, to live out these wise, vibrant principles to more fully express the gospel in tangible forms in our life. And I pray all these things through our advocate, Jesus Christ. Amen.